Someone a couple of years ago compared the smart contract with the mission-critical code. He was telling me that you could actually compare it to like the code that's used in an F-35 or to launch a satellite in space. It's code that you really have to get right. I have read the charges against Shakib Ahmed a few times now. And I think I almost entirely understand it. Without getting too into the weeds, and there's a lot of weeds, the story is set exclusively in weeds. Here's the basics. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, in July 2022, Shakib hacks a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange. The 15-page sealed indictment unpacks how, but the gist, and I'm going to stop saying allegedly now because these are all allegations, is that he found a way to imitate the equivalent of an admin account that he then used to fraudulently manipulate the fees that a user got paid for lending the exchange money. He then borrowed a ton of crypto from somewhere else, briefly loans it to the exchange, gets paid out millions in these fraudulently inflated fees before returning the loan and walking away with the money. He allegedly does this 21 times, extracting 9 million US dollars in fraudulent fees from the exchange. In the days following the hack, the government then alleges Shakib does two things. First, he Googles. All of the stuff you would Google if you had just done a big cyber money crime heist. In a section of the sealed indictment named Ahmed's post-attack internet history, it outlines these searches. They include Decentralized Finance Hack FBI DeFi Hack Prosecution Evidence Laundering Wire Fraud How to Prove Malicious Intent Can I Cross Border with Crypto? Buying Citizenship How to Stop Federal Government from Seizing Assets It is by no means illegal to search any of these things. But I do get why, if you are trying to make the case that this person is guilty, you would include the fact he had Googled them. Lastly, they allege that Shakib sends an email. A very important email. An email that kind of changes what kind of crime this ultimately is. Because up until now, it's theft. But with this email, to the exchange he had allegedly stolen from, it kind of becomes something else. A negotiation. Or a ransom. Might be extortion, I'm not totally sure. But we're going to get to that. I called up friend of the show, Lorenzo Franceschi Bicari, over at TechCrunch, who has been reporting at length on this story, to help me try and make sense of it. Scott's away this week, so this episode is my conversation with Lorenzo. The last thing you need to know for all of this to make sense has to do with smart contracts. These decentralized crypto exchanges, basically all of them, operate using something called smart contracts. Instead of the software that governs the exchange being stored on a server, it's stored on the blockchain. The very software that rules these exchanges is public and generally immutable, which sounds great until something goes wrong. Like, say, a hacker finds a bug. And now you're trying to fix a thing inside of a thing that wasn't really built to be fixed. 
the safety of that money depends on code that is completely open source. It is public. And as you say, in many cases, it's immutable because the, the developers don't even realize the risks. So here's my chat with Lorenzo about the charges against Shakib Ahmed. What happens when someone finds a vulnerability in a system that is supposed to be beyond anyone's control? And whether giving back most of what you stole changes the fact that you did steal it on this episode of Hacked. Thanks for sitting down with me, Lorenzo. It's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. So you've been covering the story since the U.S. Department of Justice announced this arrest. And I want to start with the person at the heart of all this. Who is Shakib Ahmed? What do we need to know about him for this story to make sense? Yeah, so Shakib Ahmed is, uh, or was, I w- we should probably say, uh, someone who worked in cybersecurity. He worked at a couple of... of um, Small companies, small cybersecurity companies, Optiv and Red Balloon. Uh, Red Balloon in particular is a startup here in New York. Um, Then he worked for Amazon, I think Amazon AWS in particular, as a security engineer. He had all the necessary skills to do a hack, to, you know, perform a cyber attack and um, steal money, which is what he's uh, accused of. And, you know, just to start, um, if I forget to say alleged, you know, uh, we should assume that everything I say about Ahmed is uh, alleged based on what the feds are accusing him of. So so in short, uh, he was a cybersecurity engineer, and uh, he had uh, specific knowledge about how to exploit uh, systems, how to exploit smart contracts, and things like that. At least that's what the Fed say. To be honest, from his uh, LinkedIn, it's not clear that he specifically had knowledge about smart contracts and cryptocurrency. But mm. a lot of the skills that you have as a cybersecurity researcher, engineer, uh, translate relatively well to smart contracts. At the end of the day, it's all code that um, you find bugs in, that you find flaws in, and you figure out how to exploit those flaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the difference between exploiting smart contracts and more traditional server-side kind of software. But as you said, importantly, these are just charges. They haven't been proven in court. But broadly speaking, what is the Department of Justice alleging he did? 10,000-foot view. Yeah, so the DOJ is simply accusing Ahmed of stealing around $9 million in crypto uh, from a cryptocurrency exchange, which the DOJ doesn't name, but because of the dates of the attack and the description of the exchange and the money stolen, it's clear that it was uh, Crema, Mm -hmm. uh, like a a company from abroad that uh, operates a cryptocurrency exchange, which, you know, it's basically like what Coinbase or Gemini... Uh, Binance, all these companies provide essentially a right. platform to exchange money for crypto or some crypto for some other kind of crypto and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the, the DOJ says that he exploited the, this platform in July of uh, last year. And uh, he then proceeded to try to launder the money. He also was in touch with uh, the cryptocurrency exchange. There was a little negotiation going on, Mm -hmm. and uh, he agreed to return 
uh, almost all of the money. He kept like only 1.5 million in crypto. He also agreed to tell them about the flaws that he allegedly exploited uh, in, you know, in an attempt to... Mm. Presumably, in an attempt to be like, okay, I'm a good guy. I'm help. I'm gonna help you sure. fix these flaws, so nobody else, um, nobody else uh, exploits them. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the the uh, the timeline of the negotiation that took place there because I think it's it's pretty important to whether this was a black hat, white hat, gray hat type thing. But before we get to that, I want to dig a little bit more into how this hack worked. I read, I think it's a 15 page sealed indictment. The middle, like third of it, really digs into that hack. The rest of it's pretty readable. I think I read that middle section four or five times, just trying to like grok how yeah. this hack actually worked. You've got fees for contributing to a liquidity pool. You've got these tick accounts. You've got flash loans. It's a lot. Can you help me make a little bit of sense of what are they accusing he actually did? How did this hack allegedly actually work? Yeah, so it's a little complicated, and to be honest, I am also not sure uh, about all the details and all those <laughs> like uh, sort of buzzwords that are common in crypto, but are really not un- common outside of crypto. Yeah. But my understanding is that essentially, Ahmed allegedly found you know flaws in the uh, exchange's smart contract. And he tricked mm-hmm. the smart contract into believing that he was providing more liquidity, meaning more crypto, mm-hmm. to the um, to the liquidity pool. And uh, when people contribute crypto or liquidity to this pool, they get some fees. They get some sort of like reward for for contributing to the liquidity pool. So he essentially right. tricked the exchange, the smart contract, into believing, quote unquote, that he had provided more money, more crypto that he had, and so he cashed out on that. In terms of the flash loans, took out 21 flash loans. My understanding of the flash loan is that it's essentially uh, a loan in cryptocurrency that doesn't actually have collateral because it's done very quickly. Um, and so he was able to do that without actually uh, giving any cryptocurrency, if that's, that's my understanding. The indictment actually says so that, that he performed at least 21 flash loans uh, and use them to generate falsely inflated fees from five separate liquidity pools. So I think it's a similar attack to the the first one that we 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 described. It's essentially they he found a way to trick the the exchange into giving him more cryptocurrency that he was owed that he was actually supposed to get. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements, but your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part.
All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements. But your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements. But your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. There's only one line in the whole document that really warrants a little bit of explanation that they don't really provide. And it, it sounds like this smart contract has two different types of accounts, normal accounts, like I think they call them position accounts, and then almost an admin style tick account. And with that tick account, he was able to fudge, I think, the rates that got paid out, like the fees that got paid out for loaning the system money. What's unclear to me is how he was able to get a normal account to imitate that admin-style account, what the vulnerability on the smart contract was that let him do that, I guess, kind of, yeah, that little subterfuge, that little imitation. Yeah, I mean, my intuition here is that the smart contract had some sort of bug that allowed him to pretend that he had an admin account mm-hmm. and, and, and act as an admin, whereas it was just a regular user. So he allegedly uh, figures out this vulnerability in the smart contract, uses this flash loan vulnerability to pump a bunch of money out, take out these inflated fees, uh, return the loan, and walk away with with nine million bucks in cryptocurrency. He then launders that. Yes. So the the feds allege that Ahmed uh, then proceeded to launder the stolen crypto, which is you know a pretty standard. Um, technique, pretty standard thing to do after you steal crypto. You try to launder it and uh, essentially hide your tracks because, you know, as, as you know, all the, the listeners know, uh, cryptocurrencies uh, are all based on blockchain technology, which the main feature of it is that all the transactions are recorded. They are recorded forever. They're immutable. So anything you do on the blockchain is recorded. 
any movement of the crypto is right there. And so this makes it relatively easy for the feds to find or at least follow the money. You know, finding who did it is, is one thing because the blockchain is not, um, you know, the users are not uh, necessarily identified there. You can see the flow of money, but you may not know who, who did it, but you can see the flow of money. And that sometimes leads to a person because at the end of the day, you got some cryptocurrency, you may want to cash it out and not just keep it there. Um, so what he did, uh, or what he allegedly did, was to do a series of transactions to launder it. it they were all pretty standard. Uh, he swapped some tokens from others, so some cryptocurrency from other kinds of cryptocurrency. He used bridges, which are uh, technology, some sort of block, blockchain technology that bridges from one blockchain to another. So you can go, for example, from the Bitcoin blockchain to the Ethereum blockchain and, ex and exchange Bitcoin into Ethereum directly. Um, he also transferred some of the crypto and or exchanged it rather into Monero, which is a relatively well-known and pretty anonymous cryptocurrency. It's one of the few cryptocurrencies that are actually much harder to track. It's unclear actually if the law enforcement is able to track it at all. And it was specifically designed to be uh, very hard to track. So this was a smart move mm -hmm. on his part. Um, but, you know, the rest, I think the, well, the rest clearly, the rest of the flow of the money was uh, the feds were able to follow and trace to him and trace to the hack. The next section of the indictment has a, an interesting name. It's Ahmed's post-attack internet history. And it suggests that in the days following this, uh, after, the, after the hack, after the laundering, he starts Googling some relevant terms. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so one thing that is interesting here actually is that I don't think it's clear from the indictment how they identified him. I was uh, wondering that. And uh, I wonder if that's just because they didn't need to do that for the indictment and it will come up later in the case. That, that would be my bet uh, because clearly they were able to go from you know, this anonymous person that stole the cryptocurrency and laundered it to actually identifying mm -hmm. uh, this person. And that's the first step uh, before they are able to look at his search history. Because uh, I imagine that once they identified him, however they were able to do that, then they just, uh, you know, uh, got a search warrant, went to Google and uh, asked Google what, what Ahmed uh, Googled uh, around those days. And they, they struck gold because they found out that just a couple of days after the, after the hack, he was Googling stuff like DeFi hack, which stands for Decentralized Finance. He Googled uh, stuff like why expensive crypto hacks are the cost of doing business. Um, he also had searched uh, for embezzled. He searched for DeFi hacks, FBI, DeFi hacks, prosecution. And I'm quoting from the the indictment here. He Googled for wire fraud, which is, um, I guess, ironically, the, the the crime that he was indicted for. He also allegedly searched for how to prove malicious intent. And then he also searched for, like, how to get... Uh, citizenship in other countries. Yeah. Uh, he even uh, visited a website that, uh, like a blog titled 16 countries where you, your investments can buy your citizenship. <laughs> so, you know, not only was searching for terms that right. are in there suggest that he was sort of like trying to figure out how much trouble he was in, uh, but also then he moved hmm. on to, okay, 
what can I do about this? You know, he probably realized that he was in trouble. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that he did not know that what he was doing was a crime. But you know, we'll see. We'll <laughs> see what him and uh, his lawyer uh, argue. I can imagine a universe, and this is me speculating, but I can imagine a universe in which he claims that he found those flaws and. Maybe he was worried that they could be exploited uh, by somebody else, so he decided to exploit them and then <laughs> get in contact with the um, with the target, which is something that actually has happened in um, in the world of crypto and Web three. But you know, in any of those cases, it's really hard for prosecutors, especially, to really believe that uh, these people actually were just sort of white hats, you know, looking for flaws and. Uh, trying to alert the targets um, on how to fix these flaws, but it's a, you know we can get to it, we can get into it a little bit later more if you want. But yeah, this this does happen. Uh, it does happen. There's even like some companies that have uh, talked about it publicly about how they noticed there was a bug in the smart contract, and because smart contracts live on the blockchain as well, and so they're completely mm-hmm. basically open source and anyone can read them. They were worried that somebody else could uh, steal the money, or in some cases, they even saw that someone started stealing the money, and so they stole it back, or they stole it first, mm. um, and then contacted the the target. So I think there is a universe in which Ahmed and his lawyer argue that that's what he did. But uh, even in you know even in that case, I don't think uh, the law doesn't care. I don't think the law cares about mm-hmm. the intent of doing something like this. You know, at the end of the day, you're stealing money. You're hacking a smart contract and a company, and that's kind of all it matters in, mm-hmm. in a case like this. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because um, I was worried someone was going to steal this, so I stole it. Is a very interesting defense, and yet it doesn't sound like this is the first time that argument has been made. We don't know that's what they're going to argue, but it feels like it's going that way. So, in the days after that, this hack happens. Shakib is Googling the series of terms, and then the crypto exchange Krima makes a sends a message publicly on the blockchain to the hacker, to which allegedly Shakib responds, starting some kind of a, a dialogue, almost a negotiation, to give back some portion of this stolen $9 million. Take me through that and a little bit about why uh, a person in this situation might offer to do that. Yeah, so I think this is an important step because. You know, in in that universe that I was talking about before, I think one of the key things would be for him to have reached out to the cryptocurrency exchange proactively. Sure. I think it's going to be much harder to argue that that was his intent because you know he didn't do it. So the the exchange did the first, made the first step, took the first step. They posted on the blockchain, basically pleading for the hacker to return the money. Which is super common. This has happened, uh, you know, more times than I can count, and more times than I can they have, they have even um, written about. But this has become a very common technique because a common strategy, or rather, because it's actually worked a few times. Um, perhaps the most uh, well-known case of a of a hacker that returned all the, the the stolen crypto was the Poly Network hack in also in 2021. Um, in that case, the hacker or hackers stole $600 million in crypto. Uh, with, that was the valuation at the time. Mm. Uh, the Poly Network started a, a negotiation that was, in this case, all on the blockchain, so everyone could follow it. And it was pretty bizarre. They called the hacker, like, dear hacker, dear white hat, uh, please return the money. And eventually they did. Mm. The hackers returned all the money. 
whereas in this case, going back to Ahmed and uh, Krema, uh, Krema posted the message on the blockchain, then Ahmed sent an encrypted email to the exchange. So we don't know exactly, or rather the indictment doesn't show us the whole dialogue. But basically, Ahmed is uh, allegedly emailed Krema and started a dialogue and uh, he agreed to return um, most of the money, uh, around $8 million. He kept something like $1.5 million. Um, the exchange in their message reaching out uh, told Ahmed, uh, you know, if you return the money, we're not going to press charges. You, you might like, well, you're going to avoid prosecution. Um, which it's definitely a promise that, you know, they cannot make because that's <laughs> not how the law works. Um, but somehow sure. Ahmed uh, was convinced by this. He returned most of the money. He told them that he was going to keep some. And in return, he was going to tell them uh, the flaws. So the, the indictment doesn't use these words, but this seems like, you know, they were, Ahmed was sort of like trying to set this up as some sort of like bug bounty. You know, more traditional, I found these flaws, right. uh, give me a bug bounty and, um, you know, and you can fix them. Mm. And um, and the amount of money that he got is uh, is a lot, but the bug bounties for blockchain and Bitcoin and Web3 crypto projects can be very high because, you know, they, these mark con- some, some of these smart contracts contain uh, a lot of money, a lot of uh, liquidity, a lot of uh, crypto that's worth millions and millions if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So a lot of these companies see uh, bug bounties of like even $10 million as something that is worth it because it, you know, it will save you from losing much, much more. And so long story short, um, Krema and Ahmed uh, negotiate and eventually yeah, Ahmed returns some of the money. Um, and that's, uh, and that's kind of how, you know, that's how it ended um, at least uh, between them, as far as we know. I mean, you used a really interesting word there, which is negotiation. Is in most cases, and I'm, I'm, I know you can't speak to all bug bounties, but is it a negotiation? Because that seems relevant to me. Yeah, I th- you know, I found a vulnerability and pay me some money for it is different than I found a vulnerability and now we're going to negotiate over whether it's worth two and a half million, one point eight million, one point five million. That sounds a little bit more like a a hostage situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, the, the listeners here know, but like a bug bounty usually just works like this. The company uh, whose software is, um, you know, we're talking about sets a, a set of, uh, publishes a set of rules, a set of like, uh, you know, limits and boundaries uh, for what people can uh, look for, for where people can look for bugs. Mm-hmm. And they establish a very clear list of um rewards for the type of bugs that people find. I think there may have been some cases where, you know, the impact of the bug was so high that the company decided to give the, the person more money, but this is really, it's not what happened here. It's completely different. Like in this case, the the person like stole the money, so they exploited the bug. You know, usually in bug bounties, you don't exploit the bug, at least, you know, maybe you do a proof of concept, but you don't like hack into the servers of Facebook, for example, to like show them that you found the bug. Um, so yeah, I think the hostage situation is a great way to look at it. I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, it's essentially, you know, you can imagine like, I don't know, someone stealing a car and saying, Hey, I have your car. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, I found it, it was unlocked, um, and I ran away, but now it's been a couple of days and how about I return it to you? You give me, 
don't know, $5,000 and uh, we, you know, we forget about all this. <laughs> and again, that's something that, that would work either in the, in the real world outside of the internet. Um, but yeah, this is what happened here. And uh, I don't think, uh, I don't I haven't checked this, but I don't think Crema had a bug bounty uh, program. <laughs> so, you know, this is really like, I don't think anyone can call this a bug bounty, uh, you know, in, in good faith. It's sure. clearly, you know, this was a cyber attack. This was a, a theft, and uh, then the hacker somehow hoped that by returning some of the money, they could get away with it. Which he didn't, or they didn't. It does raise the question of whether or not, uh, how do I put this, whether or not Crema honored the arrangement. And again, it's an agreement made kind of at gunpoint a little bit, so you couldn't really blame them for making the deal and then immediately turning around and turning him in. But you do wonder how the feds got onto the case and whether or not uh, Kremo was involved in it. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a legal expert, but I think that it doesn't matter. In a case like this, it doesn't matter if Crema sure. presses charges because presumably some of the users on the exchange are Americans. And so those are actually, you know, those are victims as well. So mm. even if Crema doesn't press charges, the DOJ investigates because there's a bunch of Americans who have lost uh, quite a lot of money potentially. You know, we don't know, we don't know how much, uh, you know, we don't know how many users uh, were affected or if it was just like money that Crema owned. But you know, essentially, if there's a theft and uh, the DOJ can get involved, even though you know, even if Crema doesn't mm. press charges or or decides not to press charges. That's my understanding, at least. Mm. Like, I basically what I'm saying is that when Crema promised this, they were, you know, either lying or they didn't know how these things work. That makes sense. Even if they were honest, I don't think they realized that that's not how it works. Well, it's it's an easy promise to be able to make. It's like sure, uh, whether or not we make these, whether or not we refer this on to law enforcement is relevant to but ultimately distinct from whether or not law enforcement decides to yeah, pursue Yeah, and I it. think that you sort of you suggested this, you know, they were they were trying everything they could to get the money back because as we were discussing, you know, the, the blockchain back. doesn't doesn't forget and also cryptocurrency cryptocurrency transactions are usually irreversible and so once the crypto is gone, you really need to get it back. You know, it's not like a bank that has some sort of insurance mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, pleading with the hacker to get the crypto back is the easiest way to solve the problem and uh, get the money back for your user or customers. Hmm. This story partially caught my attention because the government referred to it as a first of its kind. And I think what they mean when they say that is that it is the first charges laid concerning the hack of a specifically decentralized crypto exchange. I think that's what they mean when they say it's a first. Is that your sense of it? How is it a first? And as a journalist who has covered these kinds of stories, how is it also maybe familiar? Hmm, that's interesting. I, I forgot that they claimed that it was the first case. Um, I mean, I don't really understand why they call it the first case because yeah. a lot of smart contracts have been explored in the past. Maybe nobody has gotten caught um, yet. Mm. But I don't see how this is different from you know exploiting the poly network or... Ronin, which was like that sort of video game uh, where the North Koreans stole a lot of crypto. So, yeah, it's strange. I, I don't know exactly why they called it the first. Um, it's also like only in the title of the press release. It hasn't, yeah. it hasn't really been explained. Um, so, yeah, honestly, I don't know exactly what the DOJ meant here. 
it's a little unclear. I, I wonder if it has to do with charges being laid against an American, but it does seem like a pretty in-the-weeds distinction. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're right that it's because it's a decentralized exchange rather than a Coinbase sort of exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see how that distinction is very, very relevant to most of the public, to be honest. Yeah. It, it brings up an interesting question. So decentralized exchanges, especially ones using like big liquidity pools governed by smart contracts versus the older order book style, this, this whole tech really lives and dies by the quality of the smart contract. And some smart ca- contracts are upgradable, but my understanding is once they're deployed, once they're out in the world and people are using them, they're either immutable or much harder to change than server-side software. Does this style of decentralization make fixing vulnerabilities in a design just a lot harder when it comes to things that deal with money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, maybe this shows my bias on um, you know my opinion on cryptocurrencies and Web3 and all this stuff, but to me it's, it's ridiculous that um, you are essentially resting the, the future of a lot of money that comes from, you know, people who at the end of the day are investors. You know, not all of them are millionaires or billionaires. A lot of them are sure. small investors who have re- read about crypto on some, some magazine, some newspaper, and they've seen the returns that some, some people have made and they decide to put maybe all their, all their savings in it. Mm. And all that money is... You know, that's the safety of that money depends on code that is completely open source. It is public, and as you say, in many cases it's immutable because the the developers don't even realize the risks. Especially a couple of years ago, or even last year, when when crypto was still uh, really when most uh, you know when most cryptocurrencies were incredibly valuable and were growing in value constantly, there was a lot of interest. Uh, not only from investors, but from developers to create new new financial products, basically new crypto projects, new anything, you know, Web3 games, uh, um, mm. anything that you can think of. And so there was sort of a rush. There was a gold rush to cash in. And so a lot of people that had uh, even limited, to be honest, even limited software development knowledge, launched projects, uh, put these smart contracts online, didn't even get an audit or mm. and just hoped or didn't even realize that this is how it works. Your code is out there. If someone finds a flaw, then there is nothing you can do to stop it. And uh, because um, cryptocurrency transactions are almost uh, immediate, I mean, Bitcoin is a little slower, and you know they're not like technically immediate, but they're pretty quick. And so if you're not monitoring what happens on your network, you're not going to find out. There, there are security companies now that offer threat intelligence and monitoring of... Um, of these kind of attacks, but at the end of the day, these are just, uh, or some of these are just, uh, you know, regular mm, transactions, and uh, it's really hard to tell whether someone is moving nine million dollars in crypto because they're just moving them, mm. or it's because they're stealing them. So, so yeah, someone a couple of years ago um, compared the smart contract with the mission critical code. He was telling me that you could actually compare it to like the code that's used uh, in an F-35 or to launch a satellite in space. It's code that you really have to get right. You know, one thing is to launch like, I don't know, threads, for example, Facebook launch threads. There are some bugs in it. Sure, you know, maybe 
you know, maybe some of them are embarrassing or, you know, can have uh, different kinds of impacts. But at the end of the day, it's a social media network. You find the bugs, you fix them, and life goes on. Here, if there are bugs, um, if you get unlucky, if the bad people find those bugs, then all of a sudden you're out of $9 million or $600 million or who knows how many million dollars. So, you know, to me, it's still, to me, it's still crazy that we're um, uh, resting the fate of all this money on uh, code that it's uh, not only public, but a lot of times, unfortunately, developed by people that don't really understand security and don't understand the risks involved. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me about this, Lorenzo. It's a, it's a very interesting one, and I think we'll be following it. My pleasure.